Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. In today's special episode, we're going to be talking about a new book, Robert Menzies, The Art of Politics. And who better to talk about it than the man who wrote it, senior writer and columnist for The Australian and longtime Sky TV commentator, Mr Troy Bramston. Welcome to the IPA studio. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to be here. Good on you, Troy. It's great to have you. And uh, to ask Troy questions about his wonderful new book, I first of all have my regular Looking Forward co-host, Dr Chris Berg from RMIT University. Thank you, Scott. I preferred the word interrogate, but that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Go hard, mate. Go as hard as you like. <laughs> and also historian and IPA adjunct fellow, Dr Richard Orsop. Yeah. Great to be here, Scott. And uh, Richard, you were at the, the launch of Troy's book in Yes, Melbourne. I was. It was a, v- a wonderful launch. Which Josh Frydenberg did the launch of um, Troy's book in the heart of um, Josh's electorate, which, of course, is very appropriate, seeing that, you know, Menzies was a former member for Kuyong, so it yeah. was a terrific <laughs> bit of political continuity to have the current uh, member for Kuyong um, yeah. launching um, so Troy's think, book. Just think, Troy, maybe that event was what got Josh over the line. Well, look, I don't want to claim too much credit, but uh, but it did happen right at the you start just wanted, of the You do want to raise it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Josh owes you big time. Do not forget that Looking Forward is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a supporter, please do go to ipa.org.au and see how you can join or donate. So, um, Troy, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to you today, and um, I really enjoyed your book, and thank you for writing it. Um, I think we'd f- first start, what, what brought you to, to the life of Robert Menzies? Why did you choose to write this book? Well, you know, he's our longest-serving Prime Minister and the only Prime Minister to leave office at a time of their own choosing in the last 50-plus years, yet there's been no biography written about Menzies for about 20 years since Alan Martin's uh, quite extensive but rather dry two-volume <laughs> history. Um, And I thought there was an opportunity to revisit this guy's life and legacy because he continues to loom large. You know, if you're a Liberal leader, you have to invoke Menzies uh, almost on a daily basis. Um, And the other thing that uh, attracted me to it was I discovered a series of interviews that he'd given with Frances McNichol, a journalist, for his official biography, but she never got around to writing it. So these interviews from 1972 and 1973 have sat almost unnoticed uh, with people unaware of them in the National Library. So I was able to get a, get a hold of them, which really gave me a huge amount of material to use about Menzies that we hadn't seen before. Um, so you've, you've written a number of books on um, Labor Party figures and, and um, pay, uh, books on Labor Party renewal and so forth, biographies of Paul Keating, um, uh, books about the Whitlam dismissal and so forth. What, what I'd be interested to know is um, how, how, how is it, what, what, what surprised you about writing a, about a liberal leader or a conservative or how did you go about that um, and what was different from the Labor leaders that you'd written about in the past? Well, the last book I wrote was a biography of Paul Keating, um, who's a huge fan of Robert Menzies. Um, <laughs> and I think that I, I did not expect... Disguises it well. But I did not expect to be writing a book about Robert Menzies when I'd finished the book on Paul Keating, which was launched uh, at the end of 2016. This was the last thing that I thought I would be doing. But I was really guided by the availability of this archival research, these interviews that I just mentioned, but also, you know, his papers. He's got something like 650 boxes of personal and official papers at the National Library, and a lot of historians haven't really bothered to look at these, and so I found heaps of new information, you know, things that he'd written in his own hand, letters, uh, reports, all sorts of things that I think had been overlooked by historians. So there's nothing, uh, well, I shouldn't say nothing, but one of the things I do love to do is to to get deep into the archives, to sort of um, get 
the dust on your hands from history, as it's been said, and try to discover new things. So, so there was a lot of new material, and that's what I loved uh, doing. That's really what propelled me to, to write the book. Um, but in terms of in terms of labour, you're right. I mean, a lot of my work previously has been about labour, although I have interviewed you know, every Liberal leader since Malcolm Fraser, and I have a lot of interest in, in Liberal Party history and National Party history. Um, but what struck me about Menzies was I think he's been mischaracterised, particularly by people on the left. I mean, this is a guy, you know, born... The last Prime Minister born in the 19th century in a small country town in Victoria, wasn't part of the establishment, wasn't part of the Born to Rule Brigade, the family wasn't particularly wealthy, yet he rises all the way to the Prime Ministership. So in many ways, he's got a very typical kind of middle class background and he probably would be as comfortable in the Labor Party back then than he would be as he would be in the Liberal Party. I'm not suggesting he's a Labor guy in any way, but <laughs> but, but but his background is not typical Liberal leader. He's not from the establishment. So so it was a it was a really sort of an eye opener to do that. And I and I took the my my two young kids, thirteen and eleven, to Japarit. And this is what I regard as a great family holiday. Mm. Um, Japarit where he was born. Yep. Mm. Where he was born. And mm. to sort of see this guy, you know, come from this small country town virtually in the middle of nowhere, is makes for a really compelling story. Mm. One of the interesting you mentioned in your intro is that, um, you know, Liberal leaders always feel they need to invoke Menzies, and yet he's invoked by Liberal leaders, I suppose, across the full spectrum of Liberal politics. People can claim <laughs> he's a Conservative, people claim him as a, a, a Liberal. Who do you think, you know, where do you think the truth of that lies? They can't all be completely right about how Menzies is characterised, so what's your take on Well, that? look... Menzies is a weapon in the history wars and the philosophical wars inside the Liberal Party today. Um, I've spoken to dozens of Liberal MPs that are serving at the moment, and the one question they always ask me about the book is, do I say Menzies was a Liberal or a Conservative? <laughs> <laughs> they all want to know. because they, they, And you tell them to read the book. I tell yeah. them to buy the book <laughs> yeah, yeah. first and they then read it. They don't have to read it. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but look, the, the, the answer to that is, just to sort of give you a bit of a... a Go back, go back a step. He he is invoked by liberal leaders mm. routinely, and if you ask Malcolm Fraser, who you know I interviewed a number of times, Menzies was a liberal. If you ask John Howard and Tony Abbott, he's a conservative. Um, if you ask Malcolm Turnbull, he's a centrist. Uh, and if you ask Scott Morrison, he famously said in the week he became prime minister that what Menzies believed in then is what we believe in now. Um, whatever that means, <laughs> so, I don't so know. Yeah. Um, but they all have to invoke him and enlist him to their cause. This mm. is sort of core business for every Liberal leader. But look, w where I came down on Menzies was, OK, clearly he's a socially conservative guy, conservative in his dress. He likes alliances, he likes the monarchy, he likes tradition, you know, the rule of law, Westminster-style democracy, all of these kind of things. But within a conservative economic and social framework, he did advocate for a more liberal approach. So I, I don't regard him as a as a reactionary, I regard him as a cautious reformer. And there's a number of areas which we can talk about where he did try to push uh, the envelope. So placing Menzies in the context of the times in which he lived and governed is essential. And a lot of those times are not really relevant to today. I was, I was very on, I'd like to follow that a little bit because um, you've got a great deal of information in the book and, and a great deal of analysis on precisely this question, which I really appreciated. There's a really interesting quote that I'm not sure I'd come across from Menzies, uh, where it talks about his worldview on politics. It is a great mistake to think that politics is a conflict between two sets of ideas, Menzies said. It is not. 
it is usually a conflict between a well-recognized set of ideas and just an unreasoning negative on the other side. And I read that and I think, oh, that's an attack on conservatism as, as we would understand it. Um, uh, but, but having said that, you know, it's not that same, it's not a sort of re progressive reformist liberalism or a leftism or something like that because he's opposed to the Labor Party. So how do you, how do you think about that, that not just is he a liberal or conservative, but what was his stance towards change? Well, he was a cautious reformer is the way I, I come at it. And he tried to push the envelope on a number of policy issues, whether it's economic policy or social policy, foreign policy, slowly, gradually building support for things across the board. Um, and, you know, he didn't – when he formed the Liberal Party, I mean, he's the principal founder of it, he didn't want a conservative party. In the, he didn't want to model on the British Conservative Party, the Tory Party. He didn't want that at all. In fact, he never ever used the word conservative to describe his political philosophy. Now, we have to be careful with these terms because conservative today perhaps means something different to what it did then, and so does the word progressive. He actually called the Liberal Party progressive. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean that he's talking like Labor Green progressive mm. today, um, but, you know, when I talked to Malcolm Fraser about this years ago, he argued that, look... Menzies always wanted to be forward-looking, positive, not saying no to things, um, as you quoted there, Chris, and, you know, trying to have an agenda that was constructive um, um, for, for Australian politics. And so he tried to do, tried to do that. And, and it's complex because we use these terms in the context of the 1940s and 50s, mm. but they're not the same mm. as the terms we use today. So, look, I don't, I don't buy into the, into the idea that Menzies was you know, a small L liberal in today's sense. Um, but he was someone who was interested in the concept of liberalism. Um, and he defined that not so much in conservative terms, um, but as in someone who was willing to be, as he said, make experiments, be forward looking, be progressive. Yeah, I thought that was a, a very apposite quote you pulled from uh, uh, Keith Hancock, uh, the historian uh, who wrote in the uh, 30s, I think mainly, um, in the 40s. Uh, but you said in Australia, conservative has so many negative connotations that um, you would never call yourself a conservative because that would just imply a reactionary. Uh, whereas you could call yourself a liberal, a liberal, in which case voters would understand that you are in fact a conservative. <laughs> 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 and so you say that that's what it was like then. I, I'm not sure anything's actually changed. Uh, so um, uh, Menzies really understood the way the sort of the language uh, has in Australia has adapted from that in Britain and David David Kemp's very much on this. So I, th I think you, you drew that out very well that these, these are still challenges, I think, for, for centre-right leaders in Australia and even Cory Bernardi calling himself, a, you know, the Conservative Party. It, it, it didn't really take. Mm. No, that's right. So, so Troy, um, uh, so Menzies' career spans just some of the most important decades of the 20th century. And I thought in your book you drew out really well the importance the First World War played on his sort of self-image because um, unlike his siblings, he didn't um, uh, enlist in in, um, in France or, or, ever, or anywhere else. Um, uh, and But but then he, his career moves all the way into the 1960s and the social changes that, that we see from there. And, um, uh, and as an older retired person, he was looking at the Liberal Party and being very frustrated about its change. Do you think his, his worldview or his politics or his sort of policy preferences significantly evolved or did he did he come uh, in that period as, as 
Prime Minister twice as um, leader of uh, the UAP and then the Liberal Party. Do you think there was a big there was a big development? There was a character arc for Robert Menzies, or did, did he come to us fully formed? No, no politician comes to the prime ministership fully formed, and I think they're all changed by the office and changed by their experiences. But the truly successful prime ministers, the ones that really leave a legacy, are the ones that learn from their mistakes and evolve over time. And so Menzies is a good example of this. He understood um, that politics is a learning profession. You get better at it as you go along, and you have to adapt and you have to change. Um, so we see this particularly in his in his personal approach to colleagues. You know, he liked to when he's been state politics, he liked to refer to people by their last name, um, which he what is which is what he did at the bar. The problem with that is it looked made him seem a little bit arrogant, a little bit up himself, and so he changed his ways there. And he was this sort of aloof, arrogant, overbearing, somewhat superior guy in the 1920s, 1930s, even into the 1940s. So he had to change his ways. And, you know, there's this famous story about one of his colleagues in federal parliament saying to him in about 1940, you know, the problem with you, Bob, is that you don't suffer fools gladly. And he responded, well, what do you think I'm doing now? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So he had to change his ways Mm. personally and how he dealt with people. And it is one of the great remarkable comebacks. I mean, he's out of Mm. office in 1941, um, the United Australia Australia Party, rather, is collapsing. Um, So he has to create a new political party to organise a new political force. He has to then develop a new guiding philosophy for the party Mm. and then lead it to office. And no one has done anything like this. Mm. I mean, the scale of difficulty to do those things, let alone lead it to government and be there for 16 years is unbelievable. And so that is why he continues to loom large. But to get back to your question, uh, Chris, he did change some of his things and some of his views. And so we see after the 1961 election where the Menzies government essentially got back by one seat, um, he moves quickly in the area of state aid for non-government schools. Um, and so he'd had... An, the point about Menzies is that after repeated close calls, elections, he consolidates and goes on to win again. So, you know, he nearly lost in 1961. He nearly lost in 1954. Mm. Um, But he's able to adapt um, changes, bring in new policies, change his style, recognise what needs to be different. And this is an important political lesson. And too often we've seen political leaders make a virtue in recent years out of not changing out of sticking with their policies, even though they may be unpopular. And politics, above all, is a pragmatic business. Um, And you've got to be able to be responsive to the views of the electorate. Let's talk about these pivotal moments where he saw the big changes. And I think the the 1961, um, uh, after 1961, is a really interesting example. But there's this there's this three-year period in the during the Second World War, um, a very pivotal moment for Australia itself, where he picks himself up. He's lost the prime ministership after a first go at it. Um, it looks like Labor is um, just completely dominating um, Australian federal politics, certainly. Um, and he has to rebuild a political party, not rebuild the United Australia Party, but he decides, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll abandon those structures and let's start from scratch. So describe how you... How you uh, that, that, that's, a, that's not just a big moment in Menzies' life, but that's a big moment in Australian political culture, even Australia's national character. How do you describe him working through those um, that, that thought process at the time and, and figuring out what, what liberalism, what the free market movement looks like 
now and um, and uh, not just to prejudice your answer, but the IPA, I want to say, was founded in 1943. So, you know, if you could include the IPA in your answer as well, that would be really valuable. Well, look, I'm happy to, I'm happy to do that because he, because he was influenced by the IPA and there's this famous document, of course, it's the name of this podcast, Looking Forward, um, which did spell out a different type of Australia. Um, and one of the interesting things for me to do was to talk to, you know, the surviving ministers of the Menzies government and some of the people who knew him personally, not only his family and his staff, but party figures. And Sir John Carrick was someone I did the last interview with. He was in his 90s uh, when I interviewed him a couple of years ago, and he had been the director of the Liberal Party in New South Wales. And he was a guy who had been a, a, a prisoner of war during the Second World War and had come back to Australia, had great admiration for John Curtin and Ben Chifley, but then started to see the Labor government changing its emphasis and advocating maintaining wartime controls, um, trying to intervene more in the economy in terms of uh, nationalising the banks. And so the point of telling you this story is to say that for someone like Carrick, who admired Curtin and Chifley, he saw this was not the Australia that he had fought for in the Second World War, a government that was um, wanting more intervention in the economy was not what they envisaged. So it's important to put the context of the formation of the Liberal Party within within that um, area of trying to see a different pathway forward for Australia in the post-war years. So um, you're right, in 1943, Labor has its greatest ever election victory under Curtin. Um, the United Australia Party is a spent force. And I think a lot of historians have simply seen the, the Liberal Party as a rebadged United Australia Party or simply picking up the embers of that party and starting again. Well, that's not how Menzies saw it. He saw it as a completely new political force. And this galvanising idea of liberalism that's reflected in looking forward, um, but also he'd picked up in other from other thinkers as well, became the motive force for this party. So individual liberty, personal responsibility, support for private enterprise, these uh, things became important values in the creation of that party. Other people were looking at setting up parties as well, but no one was more successful than Menzies. And of course, he invited people to this famous conference in October 1944, which is in Canberra, and that's 75 years ago this year, um, and started to form the Liberal Party. And, and I was really interested to go back and look at the archival documents, the letters that he wrote to people, um, the minutes of these meetings, the newspaper reports, some of Menzies' own notes, and he's the key guy there. He's the guy who um, comes up with the name of the party, its structure, its philosophy, its key principles. And so he brings it all together. Mm. And then they have the second conference in Albury in, in December 1944. And so this new party comes into, into being. And so understanding the collapse of the UAP, uh, the wartime um, approach of the Labor government uh, is fundamental to understanding how the Liberal Party comes yeah. into being. Yeah, I was really interested, Troy, in one point you make is, you know, how disappointed he was with the result then of the 1946 election. You know, he set up this new party, um, but it doesn't really <laughs> get that. that it's a wash. <laughs> yeah, and that's the, the thing, that he then has to pick himself up and keep going again. And you make the point that there were a lot of people who were opposed to having Menzies as the leader at, at that time. Do you... 
think, you know, how do you see that period then from 46 to 49? Is it more that, you know, Labor make a few decisions that, you know, you know like bank, bank nationalisation and all the strikes that happen in that period? Is it Labor sort of go out of office through their mistakes or does Menzies do further things in that period which enable him to have that big win in 1949? Look, this is actually a really important period that's, I think, mm. often overlooked mm. by historians. They see the Menzies government in 1949 as inevitable. Yeah. Um, well, he never saw you it know. as inevitable and the party didn't mm. see it as inevitable, um, there was his famous phrase, you can't win with Menzies, mm. uh, because he'd been thrown out in 1941. Mm. And then when he lost that 1946 election, his daughter told me that he'd often get these phone calls from the media asking to comment. And he would say, what can you say when you've been run over by a steamroller? <laughs> so mm. he was very depressed. Uh, but depressed might, might, depressed might be too strong a word, mm. but, but he was very saddened by what had happened and it, it shook him up significantly. And the party started to think about alternative mm. leaders. Um, and so one of the things I was able to discover in these in these papers and in the interviews that he gave is that some in the party wanted to make an approach to Tom Playford, the South mm. Australian Premier, or even Don Bradman, can you mm. believe it, to come in and lead <laughs> the Liberal Party <laughs> in 1947-48. And Menzies actually resigns as, as Liberal Party leader in 1947 and uh, demands somebody in the party step forward and, ch and challenge him or re-endorse his leadership. And his leadership is re-endorsed, but still there are people like Richard Casey, who was the Liberal Party president. Uh, he was being talked about as possibly a better leader. And Menzies, I don't think, really felt secure until after he came into government and won a few elections, probably by the early 1950s was when he really felt secure. So we now see Menzies as a colossus figure, mm. and that's a term I use in the book by 1966, but he was not that mm. in the late 1940s. Mm. And that also makes the point. I've always been fascinated was how would you know how would Menzies be viewed if he'd lost in 1961, which was obviously an incredibly close election. I mean, his career, in a sense, would have been more like you know John Howard's sort of length rather than the length that he went to. And as you say, and eventually being able to choose the time of his departure. Do you think we'd regard Menzies differently if because that, that was a one seat? Yeah, Jim Killen's famous win in Morton and Brisbane. How do you, how do you? think we'd see Menzies if it had been cut short, say, at that point? Do you think it made well, any difference? Well, look, we're pretty harsh on our political mm. leaders if they lose elections. Mm. Um, so I think Menzies would be seen to be different. But I, I, I do argue in the book, and I try, I, I'm try. i very fair to Menzies, I think, in praising things that he did right, but also critical mm. where things he got wrong. And no politician, let alone a prime minister, mm. gets everything right. Mm. I do think he stayed too long. Mm. And I think his history, I think his legacy would be better served if he had have lost, if he had have left office in 1963, mm. um, things like the Vietnam War would not have um, would not have um, been an issue for him, which I don't think reflects well on him, and we might talk about that later. But his cabinet was starting to change on issues, things like the White Australia policy. You know, um, Hubert Opperman, the famous Olympic mm. cyclist, as immigration minister, wanted to start to water down the White Australia policy. The cabinet wouldn't have a bar of it, although um, Harold Holt, when his government came in, did that very quickly. Uh, Menzies didn't want to re um, remove discriminatory provisions in the constitution in relation to Aboriginal Australians, uh, whereas Holt was happy to tack that on to the 1967 referendum. So I think Menzies was increasingly out of time. Although he was dominant, he was respected, he was admired... He's, even his own cabinet felt that on some issues, other ones like apartheid, for example, in South Africa, which he disagreed with Garfield Barwick on, they felt he was out of time and um, the modern world was 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 uh, not something in which he was completely comfortable. So how, how should we think about that? So um, Menzies, as you 
uh, as you pointed out in this interview and you framed the book, that every liberal leader has to measure themselves against Menzies in some way. But in many senses, um, uh, he's, he's policy interests, his focus was very different from things that we would accept or desire today. And so there's obvious um, Indigenous Australian policy, um, uh, sim- sympathy for appeasement, um, certainly early in the Second World War, um, uh, support for the white Australia policy, all these sorts of things. Yep. How, how do we think through... And, and and even, actually, I'll be slightly more specific. I mean, his um, his Keynesian economics that you point out very well, there's a piece in The Spectator Australia that points out that um, Menzies was very much a protectionist, um, comparing him to Donald Trump today. Um, this is not by our measure, and if Menzies turned up with that set of public policy preferences, we would think of him as not just out of time, but on, on a radical end of a spectrum and, and way outside the normal range. How, how should we think about those, not just flaws, but different preferences of the leaders of the past? Well, the Liberal Party, the National Party and the Labor Party have abandoned Menzies' economic policies. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Economic policy is probably the most important aspect of government and no major, no mainstream political party would adopt his policies. So tightly regulated capital product and labour markets, no flow to the dollar, a higher tariff wall, regulated workplace relations. I mean, this is not the Australia of today, a large-scale immigration program that is non-discriminatory. You know, two million migrants came to Australia when Menzies was Prime Minister, but but they weren't um, obviously from Asia or or Africa. Um, And so Menzies' Australia is very different to what it is today. So there's nothing to learn from that, and we need to be honest about that and not whitewash it from history because... I think the reason I subtitled the book The Art of Politics is because I think that is the most contemporarily relevant aspect of his legacy. It's how to how to practice politics. And in terms of what the Liberal Party can learn, I mean, he, he led, a, led a party that was mostly united. He gave it a guiding philosophy and a clear set of values that he could articulate clearly. Um, he had a good and cooperative, cooperative relationship with the country party or the national party. You know, he did something that was not rocket science, but we haven't seen a lot of it in recent years, which is running a proper cabinet process, which respects debate and discussion, um, although he's still a dominant figure in cabinet, um, uh, respects the public service. He's a good administrator of government. He can manage his time. He can run a prime minister's office. He can run a cabinet process. He can work with the bureaucracy. So, So these things... Shouldn't be surprising, um, but I think that is the most contemporary aspect of his legacy, which is how to practice politics. Yeah, we should never underestimate that. Um, I mean, we we on this podcast are as interested in you know higher ideas uh, as much as the next man or woman, but uh, <laughs> significantly more than that. <laughs> significantly <laughs> more. Uh, but there is this reality to politics, and uh, and and uh, it's nice to read uh, somebody write about it who is who is sympathetic to it, and and a lot of what Menzies talks about is they're they're the basics that practitioners see but can be hard to execute it's like you need a message that is understandable and can be repeated and is repeated consistently and is compete uh done consistently in each state that was one of the things that the liberal party was set up to address that you had different messages in each state um you needed um, you know uh, publicity Operations, as it was the phrase of the day, God knows what Menzies would make of uh, social media. But um, they, these are all really real basics, and I think, uh, in many ways, 
you know, following if David Kemp is right that, uh, and I think he probably is, that the you know the liberal tradition in a, in, a, in various guises is perhaps the the central dominant tradition of Australian political life. What what Menzies really did with the creation of the Liberal Party was he finally gave it an institutional form where all the things that need to sit underneath a, a set of ideas actually came about a, a national organisation, a funding model that didn't leave them beholden to big business. Um, equal representation within the party of men and women uh, through its institutional structures, which survives still after 75 years. These, these were all. Uh, that's that's the real legacy for me that he built the institutional structure underneath a set of ideas. Yeah, look, I mean, there's a couple of watchwords here. I mean, he he gave the Liberal Party um, coherence around policy and philosophy, which we haven't seen. Um, in recent years. He gave it unity, which we haven't seen in recent years, and he gave it longevity and electoral success. Now, Scott Morrison obviously pulled an election win out of the fire, and, and good luck to him. That's great. But, um, you know, will they govern for 16 years? Um, <laughs> probably, <laughs> or 23 years? Probably not. Um, but there's, an, there's a caveat to that, can I just add briefly, which is, you know, he nearly lost mm. the 1954 mm. and 1961 elections, mm. as we mentioned earlier. And so uh, the idea that uh, Doc Everett or Arthur Corwell becoming Prime Minister was a real, mm. live, close possibility. Now, it is strange to think that they could ever have been Prime mm. Minister, totally unsuited temperament temperamentally uh, to the job, intellectually perhaps We've never to had the that job. from Labor leaders since. Uh, no, uh, we haven't. Yeah. We haven't. All Liberals. Um, <laughs> stable, but, but, stable geniuses. So he was stable. lucky. He was lucky as well, and he exploited those divisions in the opposition, and they were lacklustre. Labor leaders. Mm. So they, that, that's an important part mm. of his, his and, longevity. And, the, and the split, too, obviously, didn't help Labor in that period as well. So That's yeah. right. Mm. Mm. That's right. Mm. Yeah, I mean, was he just lucky? I mean, so, so there's a sense in which, um, and you very well bring out the art of politics, um, but there's a there's a good sense in which, like, well, just that he he mm. he got lucky a lot of times mm. in a row. He he failed once or twice, but you know, getting to come back as prime minister, um, just scraping in an election, is that his talent or is that just them's the breaks? Well, there's always a bit of luck involved in politics. Mm. I mean, to be successful, you've got to have a little bit mm. of luck sometimes. But he also created his own luck. I mean, he had done the he had done the groundwork um, on a number of issues, and you know, so after the 1961 election, as as we mentioned, he he brought in those significant um, um, changes to school funding by funding non-government schools. So that was that was important, and he saw an opportunity there where the Labor Party was divided over that issue. So he so he created his own luck. Uh, as well. Actually, I might uh, let's let's talk about that for a moment. So um, uh, Richard and I were kicking this around yesterday. So sectarianism has been a uh, an ugly feature of Australian political history uh, at different times. Um, the divide between Protestants and Catholics, uh, say in the late nineteenth century, and then various guises in the twentieth century. And you've got a couple of anecdotes um, of Menzies, who who was as uh, who was quite Protestant. Uh, um, if not out of the establishment, became part of it, but was resolutely non-sectarian in his, in his dealings, in his, in his personal dealings uh, across the aisle in Parliament or with his constituents. And, and you point out that his, his father uh, was quite the opposite. His, his, his father could reasonably be classified as a, as a bigot, as a, as a Protestant bigot. And the, and the question is, you, you make your own luck. So when, when the Labor Party splits... And you have the DLP 
uh, with its uh, its Catholic voting base, identifying school funding as an issue. It's almost like Menzies is uniquely placed to say, well, I don't care what the cultural history of the Liberal Party might have been up to this point, but this is something we can actually get behind. Mm. Yeah, look, it was a really interesting issue to look at, and we should be we shouldn't suggest that. Um, sectarianism ended because Menzies provided mm. limited funding mm. to non-government schools, and let's be frank about <laughs> it that. Turns out it takes more than that. It, it mm. does. Yes. <laughs> well, and, and let's be frank about it. I mean, some people, I think, including John Howard, who I have great respect for, has exaggerated this point a bit. What Menzies did with those non-government schools, essentially Catholic schools, was provide some some funding for the teaching of science, mm. um, science facilities, teachers, and so mm. on, and also funded some technical colleges. But it wasn't um, recurrent. Um, funding for the ongoing, you know, learning and education in non-government schools. It was an important step. Um, but he did it cautiously, and you're right to point out about uh, sectarianism. Menzies described himself as a simple Presbyterian, um, and I didn't find any hint of any sectarianism at all um, in his life. And, in fact, he was once invited to be on a stage with, I think it was Daniel Mannix, um, the Catholic um, Archbishop here in Melbourne, um, and his father was outraged um, that he that Mannix would appear in Menzies' state electorate, um, and and he would be on the same stage as him. And so I found in this interview, which hadn't been published before, where Menzies told about told the rest of his family, "Look, I am not the member for Presbyterians or Protestants." He said, "I will do anything I can, whether they're." He even says, "Muslim, Jewish, Catholic, no matter what their religion is, I represent all people." Now, this was a somewhat radical idea, you know, in the 1920s and 1930s that there would be no hint of sectarianism in his politics at all. And so this is a very admirable feature. So you're right in pointing out he was a good um, politician, perhaps the only one of the only politicians who could actually start to break down that divide with funding. Um, and so I don't think the left of politics have fully appreciated that or understood that. And the other thing is universities as well. So, you know, the university transformation is quite significant during the Menzies prime ministership. Universities double from six to 12. Um, funding increases tenfold. Um, most students at university by the end of Menzies' time were on a scholarship. So about three quarters of them were on scholarship or some kind of assistance. And the teaching and resources and students had totally transformed in that university sector. Now, some some people might go, well, that was a that was a mistake. Um, <laughs> That's but what <laughs> Bob, Bob Santa Maria told him. But, uh, <laughs> you're, you're right. Makes yeah. others, yes. You're right. Um, but on the left, I don't think they've given him enough credit for it. And, you know, I was lucky to get Clive James to read the book and he gave me a quote which we didn't hesitate to put on the cover because uh, it was so <laughs> positive. But he, he said, look, there's a whole generation of young Australians who got a university education because of Menzies and then spent the rest of their life denigrating him on a whole <laughs> range of issues. Since Scott raised the BA Santa Maria line, let's talk about it. I, I, I might quote from your book if you don't mind, Troy, because I really love this. Tell me about the three biggest mistakes I ever made. Menzies asked Santa Maria late one afternoon. Although reluctant to do so because it was rude, he nominated one, consolidating Canberra as the national capital, two, expanding the university sector, and three, creating the Liberal Party. Menzies was astounded and replied, but they're the only three things I ever did. What do you think Menzies regretted uh, out of his choices at the end of his prime ministership? What, what do you think he think, the mistakes he think he would have made? 
he didn't regret anything in, in terms of policy. <laughs> He's a professional politician. Um, so, yeah. e- e- even <laughs> incidents which we probably won't go into about mm. like the Suez crisis mm. where he, mm. he tries to lead an international mission in 1956 mm. to resolve it. Mm. And he goes to Egypt. He goes to Egypt mm. and it ended in humiliation. Mm. Uh, even at the end of his life, he's still blaming Dwight D. Eisenhower mm. uh, for intervening and not supporting the Israeli or French mm. forces invading Egypt to take back the canal by force. Mm. Uh, it's unbelievable, but he still believed in that. But what he did regret, and we should talk about this for a second, is those who succeeded him. Yeah. So he he is extraordinary in these reel-to-reel taped interviews that I discovered as he's talking about um, his successes. So, you know, he regarded Harold Holt as a bitter disappointment who wanted to <laughs> mm. be loved, went from disaster to disaster. Mm. Um, he thought jo- John Gordon was a terrible blunder, uh, wasn't interested in details, tried to be too mm. dominant in Cabinet, was concerned about his personal life. Um, which we all know about, Um, he thought Billy McMahon was simply a fool, is the Mm. term that he used, and a worm um, who couldn't be trusted and had no credibility or authority. (laughs) And in 1973, he actually said, idiots, quote, that's a real word, idiots, uh, were running the Liberal Party. So he regretted Mm. what had happened so much. These are tough reviews. (laughs) These are are tough assessments, probably too tough, um, but it's so wounding for the Liberal Party's mm. historical memory mm. and for their history that their that their founder just trashes mm. the leaders who came after them. And I'll just add this. And, of course, the result of that is that he doesn't vote Liberal mm. in 1972, which his daughter confirmed to me. And I, don't, I think there's a good reason, based on other research, to suggest he didn't vote Liberal in 1969 um, or 1974. So this is not good for the Liberal Party's no. historical memory. Do you think he, I mean, because part of the criticism means he's, was he always got rid of rivals, you know, Casey, Barwick and co. Is, he, is there any sign that he regretted getting rid of some of those people so they weren't options in the parliamentary party? Well, the person he did think should have led the Liberal Party is Paul Hasluck. Mm. Now, a lot of people who know Paul Hasluck think that's a, that's a ridiculous idea. <laughs> um, tell, tell us briefly about Paul Hasluck. Paul Hasluck had been Minister for External mm. Affairs and had looked after territories, mm. um, and he actually supported, uh, well, he supported Holt, there's no doubt about mm. that, who had been his long-term deputy. But when Holt disappeared um, in 1967 in the ocean, he thought Hasluck was the guy who should take over, mm. uh, not Gordon. Mm. Uh, and so he was very disappointed about that. And I found another interview with Garfield Barwick, who, of course, had gone to the High mm. Court by this stage, uh, and he seemed to suggest that Menzies had favoured him as his successor. Mm. Now, of course, Barwick would say mm. that um, in later later years. Um, but, you know, I think Menzies did mm. have some some respect for Barwick. But then again, those who know Barwick think he probably would be a terrible Prime Minister. Mm. But yeah, is, this a, is this a personality thing or is this a, a, a belief about the direction of the ideology of the Liberal Party or is this just, you know, he hates the idiots who, who aren't as good as Robert Menzies? I think it's a mixture of all those things. So he, mm. for, with John Gordon, for example, he didn't think and, you know, he didn't think that John Gordon was well-equipped to run a cabinet process. Gordon mm. famously said at his first press conference as Prime Minister that if the Prime Minister believes something, that view should prevail. Well, this is an anathema to Menzies who ran a colle- largely colle- mm. collegiate cabinet process. He also thought that the Holt government had lost direction pretty quickly uh, and wasn't able to recover after some setbacks and scandals like the VIP affair, which we don't need to go into detail on. So it was partly about politics. It was partly about running a government, uh, more so, I think, than policy. So yes, it was largely personality related. Mm. And uh, uh, just an aside on on Hasluck, um, uh, he lacked the art of politics because Mm. uh, my recollection is that one of the reasons why 
uh, Gordon did win was has like refused to actually pick refuse, up the phone. He refused to campaign. He yes, he thought that undignified. was undignified. Undignified. Mm. 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 Fancy mm. asking for votes. Mm. Yeah, look, <laughs> Hasluck was compre- comprehensively our campaigned mm. by Gordon. Mm. The famous story about Gordon is that he was even uh, asking for votes at Harold Holt's funeral. Mm. Um, so he didn't waste any time mm. um, in trying to seize that Liberal Party leadership. But Menzies did think that salvation would come for the Liberal Party when Malcolm Fraser mm. became Prime Minister and he did return to the fold, although his daughter, Heather Henderson, who's now 90, told me that he would sit in front of the TV and say, Malcolm can do nothing right. Mm. So he even was disillusioned with uh, Fraser by the end. Mm. But, but Fraser was much more assiduous about calling on the great man, which mm. is uh, probably a good place to start. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things you emphasise in your book, Troy, is um, Menzies' relationship with Curtin and Chifley, the sort of very highly respectful relationship that they had, um, which is, you know, it's tempting to sort of think, well, it's a different era, but then at this, in that same era we have something like Earl Page's speech about, you know, Menzies, which is one of the most disrespectful speeches probably ever delivered in the federal parliament in its history. Do you think there's any lessons that can be learnt about that type of political behaviour and those across-the-aisle type relationships and how would, would politics be better today if it was more like that or is there is it just a different era and things are done differently? How do you see I th- that? I think they're different men and it mm. is a different era, um, but I think it, it would help our politics for there to be more genuine friendships and collaboration across the political divide and, and I think that would actually help, you know, the party in power uh, gain a political dividend um, by doing that. I think voters want to see... Um, politicians come together and do do things when they when they can I was really struck by the ex, by the depth of these relationships Menzies had particularly with Curtin and with Chifley um, they weren't just saying friendly things to each other they genuinely felt it and they meant it and some of the correspondence they wrote to each other where they do talk about how important their friendship is is you know really quite touching to read all these years later and you just can't imagine uh, politicians on the other side of the chamber writing to each other like this. And um, Menzies was very upset when, when Curtin died. And I found a letter, which I don't think had been published before, that Menzies had written to Curtin um, when Curtin was sick and dying in bed at the lodge in mid-1945. Hadn't been seen in Parliament for a long time, hadn't been to Cabinet meetings. And Menzies wrote him a letter as opposition leader saying, look, uh, ben Shifley and I are looking after everything here. Don't worry. Try to get better. Don't make any big decisions. You've got plenty of time to do that. Try and get a holiday. Um, and he died a week later. Now, that's quite an extraordinary letter. It's not a normal thing for a politician to do. And, of course, there's the famous example um, on the night of the Jubilee Ball in Canberra in 1951, celebrating 50 years of Parliament. Ben Shifley doesn't go. He stays at the Currajong Hotel. He tells... Um, Fred Daly, he's going to read a few westerns and have mm. his typical dinner of tea and toast. Um, he doesn't mm. own it. He does not a, doesn't mm. regard himself as a good dancer. Doesn't own a tuxedo. Mm. Um, and of course, news comes to the ball that Chifley had died. Um, and Menzies goes to the microphone and interrupts the band and delivers the news and has tears streaming down his face and tells everybody that a great Australian has died tonight and we should all go home as a mark of respect. Now. This is extraordinary stuff. This is not the usual politeness in politics. This is much deeper and much stronger. So I was quite struck Mm. uh, by that, and I think those examples illustrate it. And, yes, I think our politics would be better if there was more of that in politics today. On the other hand, until last year, I think it was, Richard Miles and Christopher Pine held a TV show together. So there's there's that. We've still got Mm. TV shows. Yeah, look, and there are examples of it. You know, Josh (laughs) Frydenberg and Ed Husick, and and there are are a few others. But I don't don't think they uh, compare to the depth of relationships 
relationship between Menzies and Curtin and Chifley? Um, let's say we had had a Prime Minister, Don Bradman. Um, uh, what would, or, or any other conservative leader, what would have Australia look like without Menzies? So I'm, I'm just trying to think. There would have been conservative governments, absolutely, because you know swings and roundabouts. This is politics. But what was the unique mark that that you now see Australia having because of the Menzies years? What 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 is the Menzies um, what is the Menzies legacy for Australia specific to him? Well, I mean, the, in terms of the legacy, there are we've talked about universities and education. I mean, there's the massive expansion of the middle class, the home-owning middle class, an era of largely, for, mother, for the most part, rising national income, um, you know, migrants, more migrants coming to the country. He cemented the alliance with the ANZUS Treaty, developed Canberra, as you mentioned. Um, one thing that would be different is the Japan um, Commerce Agreement. So this is something that the Menzies government had signed in 1957, which basically was the foundation for our most important long-term post-war trading relationship. Well, the Labor Party opposed that. Uh, they voted against it in the parliament. Um, so perhaps our trading relationship would be would be very different. But there's no doubt that, you know, one of the things we talked about earlier was Menzies' ability to unite his party and keep them all together. Well, Everett couldn't do that. So if Everett had have won in 1954, um, his party was already bitterly divided. And so we may have seen, uh, you know, a, a more of a breakaway element in the Labor Party in the 1950s. And I don't think intellectually Arthur Corwell, you know, going toe-to-toe -to -toe with world leaders, uh, John F. Kennedy or Harold Macmillan or these kind of people, you, you just can't see it. Um, so, so he was clearly, he had outclassed his opponents and um, we may have seen shorter run Labor governments, and then that begs the question, without getting too hypothetical about it, whether the Liberal Party might have actually come to power later. Um, but the other point is this, is if the Liberal Party had lost in 1949, some people would have clearly said, Menzies, you can't win with mm. Menzies, that's been proven, so he would have gone. Mm. And who would have led mm. this centre-right political party? I don't know mm. the answer to that. Um, perhaps someone like Percy Spender, mm. who had leadership ambitions, could have taken over... Um, the Liberal Party, it's its a great unknown. And it's and it's quite possible that what we were, would have lost is that vision thing. And so I was struck by a line that you quote from the Forgotten People speeches um, where he talks about um, what the Liberal Party is standing for and it's homes material, homes human and homes spiritual. And um, that seems to me to be a, um, a, a an attempt by, by Menzies to encapsulate what his government and therefore the society that it governed would stand for as well. Yeah, and so this is one of the great successes of Menzies. He's giving the Liberal Party philosophical coherence um, and unity, a clear set of direction and values. And these were largely set down in that now fabled, iconic, forgotten people speech. But a lot of people don't remember. Recently republished by Connor Court Publishing, in, I will Indeed. Add. <laughs> but a lot of people don't remember, you know, that's in 1942. The Liberal Party didn't exist mm. then. Mm. Uh, Menzies was on the back bench. He was a mm. washed-up ex-Prime Minister when he gave this radio broadcast, one of, you know, dozens that he gave um, on Friday night radio in that mm. in that period. So um, what that does is give a philosophical roadmap mm. for this new political party that was yet to be formed. And I thought that was really interesting because it had no impact on the United Australia Party or the politics of the time because mm. a year later, Labor under Curtin in 1943 has a massive election victory. Mm. Um, so the idea that this speech you know, turned politics into a new mm. direction is false. Mm. Um, its real benefit and lasting value came many, many years later mm. in providing that framework for the Liberal Party.
Yeah, and I think, uh, Troy, uh, you rightly say that, you know, it is a very uh, fair book, uh, fair to Menzies, and uh, read in context with Keating, what, what you do understand clearly is that there is a difference between the progressive side and the conservative side about a vision. So we saw this again in the most recent election where uh, in the lead-up it was like um, uh, the progressive critique of Scott Morrison and his government uh, was always, well, there's no plan, there's no vision for how they're going to change Australia because the assumption is that a plan and a vision must necessarily involve a program of change, whereas on the centre-right, programs often involve more of that vision of um, uh, uh, that Chris just quoted about, you know, home spiritual and, you know, home's material. It's, it's, a, it's a vision of a life and a, and, a, and a set of values. So you can have a vision that's not necessarily a program and I, I think that, that, that you're very fair in that respect. Yeah, I think that's right and I think that's actually – you've hit the nail on the head there in terms of how Scott Morrison managed to, to win that mm. election against the, all the odds – um, that were stacked against him because he did talk about values. And I actually think, going back to Josh Frydenberg's budget speech in April, um, did actually provide a real framework for the Liberal Party start to start talking about some of these things, whether it is personal responsibility, um, reward for effort, uh, the family, private enterprise, um, home ownership. These are kind of enduring Liberal Party principles. And I actually think uh, for a long time, the Liberal Party had a muddled sense in government about what it actually believed in and who it represented. And I think the Morrison-Frydenberg combination did bring the party back to articulating those values much more clearly and much more effectively. And I think that's a big reason why uh, they won the election. Mm. Obviously now you've become one of the more significant biographers of Australian Prime Ministers, having done a key, both Keating and um, Menzies now. Um, had I mean, who are your inspirations as political biographers? What do you look at, you know, what do you regard as a good political biography in terms of books that have been written in the United States or the UK? Is there anything in particular where you think that's the model that people should follow? And overall, how well served do you think Australia has been up till now in terms of its political biographies, particularly of prime ministers? Look, uh, this might sound a little bit arrogant, but I'm not trying to sound like that. Troy uh, Bramson is the best. No, I'm not saying that. I, I just don't think we've been all that well served by biography. I mean, I just really don't. I mean, there are some standout biographies, of course, um, but there's a lot of prime ministers that you know, haven't been properly um, given that treatment in a historical yeah. sense. No, it's remarkable that the William McMahon, a, a significant, although not very long-lived, um, prime minister, only just got a biography. Yeah. yeah. So right. there were zero biographies of one of our prime ministers a, until a like few, last year. To be year. fair, a few people had tried, they had tried and, and, and yeah. you know, and run into difficulties. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. you know, as yeah. we said at the start, this is the first biography of Menzies in twenty years. Mm. I mean, he's our mm. longest-serving mm. prime minister. I mean, what have you guys been doing here at the IPA? Come on, is, is that just because we're small? Uh, maybe, maybe. Uh, I just don't know that we have that kind of tradition. You know, I mean, biographies of George Washington mm. come out every every <laughs> week. So, um, look, but in terms of your, your mm. question, Richard, you know. Um, Look, Robert Caro mm. is obviously the standout mm. biographer of our time, mm. but I don't have 10 years to work um, on, 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 on a book. <laughs> um, I'd be poor and living in a cardboard box, um, which is not a good way to On the history of the Tennessee water system or whatever. <laughs> yeah. no. so, yeah. I, so that he's the Texas, he's Texas the standout. electricity. Texas I think. electricity. <laughs> but look, some of the others I greatly admire, and I've, as a journalist I've been lucky to interview them, you know, sort of something that 
um, you know, I've tried to do, which is people like Ron Cherno, who mm. of course written, mm. written books on Hamilton and and Washington, um, and also Andrew Roberts' book mm. on Churchill. Mm. That's outstanding. We interviewed Andrew Roberts on his Churchill book uh, a couple of months ago. I'm mm. looking at Scott. <laughs> yeah. So look, these are the people that sort of I, I mm. look to, and there are other great mm. historians as well. David McCullough's book on Truman. Mm. Um, is very bo- mm. is, is very good, mm. and uh, I like Michael Beschloss, who's just written a book on uh, president U.S. presidents and war. Mm. Um, so there are some people that I that mm. I look to, of course. But I think in Australia, the best political historian has been Paul Kelly, mm. uh, and so his his style of writing is very influential um, with me. And I was lucky to write a book with Paul about the dismissal mm. a few years ago. So um, look, uh, we can do much better, and I wish there were more biographies of Menzies. I'd welcome another one to be mm. written in in a couple of years time that'd be great um and <laughs> not too soon with Kerry O'Brien's Keating book at the same time you had the two books simultaneously I yeah. was and to be honest I was worried about that booking mm. book coming out but largely it was just a collection of transcripts so yeah. um so I was fortunate um mm. in that and at the moment I'm working on a biography of Bob Hawke oh, cool. um which I've been doing for some years and I've interviewed Bob uh, for that book um and I've been a lot of that research for that book's mm. already completed so that'll be the next um, biographical subject mm. that I challenge. And mm. when can readers expect it? Maybe Sorry. next year. Mm. Maybe next year. Yeah, I've, I've got. No, I'm a, holding. We're going to hold you to that. Yeah, mm. I'd like to come back here and yeah, talk yeah. about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I've got, I've got, a, I've got a fair bit to do, but uh, it's, it's pretty <laughs> it's advanced. Mm. Yeah. No, no, no. It does. Uh, I mean, both both Menzies and Churchill certainly would have said, you know, biography is how you actually learn about politics. So, mm. so these do do a service not just to historians, but for anyone out there that is interested in the art of politics which mm. is the subtitle of your book, Troy. Uh, and we will put a link to that in the description. Any closing questions, Chris? No, look, I thought that was, I thought that was fascinating. I'm, I'm really interested in... Um, uh, what, what strikes me is there are... You, you say there's not a lot of biographies, but there seem like a lot of biographies of Gough Whitlam. Um, there seem like a lot of biographies of Labour Party um, grandees. Um, uh, not necessarily Bob Hawke, so, you know... That yours will be a significant contribution, no doubt. But it just strikes me that uh, the conservatives don't tend to write their own history. Um, that might be changing a bit, but uh, there's whole swathes of Australian conservative and liberal, or classical liberal, even libertarian history that haven't been adequately covered. And so we on the centre-right don't really know our own story, know our own legacy and our heritage. Why do you think that is? And, and, and you know, what can we do about it apart from just we, we need to do more typing? Look, I don't know the answer to that question, to be honest. I mean, I've got a few clues. Um, some people have often said that conservative books don't sell, um, although John Howard's memoirs yeah, are, I think are, that's are less the best-selling. I think that's mm. less true than it was. So that uh, I think about 10 years people said that, and now Howard smashed all records. Mm. And mm. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, you know, that is the best-selling prime ministerial memoir um, in terms of a full-life memoir, although Gough Whitlam did have the best-selling book, which was his little book about the mm. dismissal. Mm. Um, <laughs> I'll just get that in there because it's something that people often forget. Mm. Um, but look, yeah, you're right. I mean, I just don't know why. I mean, you guys, you've got a mm. great team here. I mean, you should allocate the prime ministers to each other and away mm. you go. To be honest, I think they're all lazy. That's the, that's the real problem. <laughs> 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 too busy doing podcasts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. We're slowly working our way through them. I'm thinking of Zachary Gorman and he's uh, not a prime minister, but he's he's 
book of Joseph Carruthers. So, Absolutely. Nineteenth uh, century uh, liberal. We will work his way up to the twenty first century uh, within a couple of years. Over time. Yeah. No. No. It's been uh, brilliant having you on. Um, all the best with future sales. We look forward to the paperback edition. We look forward to the Bob Hawke edition. Uh, thank you, Chris Berg, for leading this discussion today. Thank you, Richard Allsop. Uh, thank you to our producer for the day, Mark Burgess. Thumb, big thumbs up there. Hopefully he remembered to hit record. Yes, he's nodding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've been listening to Looking Forward, a product of the IPA. If you'd like to join or donate, please do go to our website. And uh, a big hand for Troy Brown. Thanks thank you so much. much Troy. Thank, thank you. Thanks for having me.